So today we're beginning a series called The Ladder of Prayer, From the Practical to the Mystical. And as you can imagine, if there were a thousand teachers to teach this class, you would have a thousand different courses. So this is just, call it one face or one way of, of approaching prayer. I myself could have picked a hundred different ways to do it, but this is how it came down to me to do this. So first of all, it's called from the practical to the mystical because this encompasses the enormous potential that prayer has. But also, as we all know, there are all kinds of problems, philosophical and just practical problems with prayer in that it's something we do every day and it is so easy to fall into rote with prayer. So it's a huge, huge problem. And then there's also many, many philosophical questions as to what prayer even is and why are we praying and what benefit is there from prayer and the fine line between obligation and, let's say, privilege to pray. And then there's just so many incredible uh, insights from a Kabbalistic, Hasidic, mystical point of view. So I built the course in the following way, that we're going to start at a step that many people don't have uh, sufficient appreciation for, because if we're going to daven three times a day, I think it's worth it to begin a discussion of prayer with the history of, of prayer. In other words, where does it come from that we are davening three times a day? What's the history? How did it develop to that point? So there may be many things that I say that uh, people will know already. And there are many things that might be new, but it's always good to hear it in a, in a, in a context. And then we're going to move into the area of kavana. Kavana means intent. And we're told that we need to pray with kavana, with intent. So we're going to see a, an amazing development of this concept from the Torah to the Talmud through the Shulchan Orach until today. Like, what does it mean to have kavana when we pray? And the truth is, by learning this, we'll also get a, a little bit of a handle on having kavana for all the myths that we do. Okay, so we're going to start with understanding prayer is a mitzvah. So we'll start with a, a, a well-known disagreement about is prayer a mitzvah from the Torah? Good question to start with. Is it one of the 613 mitzvah? So, this is as foundational as you can get. Is it or isn't it? So we have two opinions. The Rambam is of the opinion, and he is uh, by himself here. He is virtually the only great decider of law who says this. But because he's the Rambam, it can't be easily dismissed. The Rambam held that prayer is uh, what's called a writa. It is a mitzvah from the Torah. Where does he learn this from? It's in Devarim 11.13. And it says, the Pasuk is, And you will serve him with all of your heart. So the Gemara asks, when they talk about serving God with all of your heart, what service are they talking about? How does one serve God with all of their heart? So the Gemara says, this is prayer. So the Rambam understood that, that since the verse is from the Torah, you shall serve God with all your heart. And the rabbis are telling us, this is prayer. So he learned that it's a mitzvah from the Torah to pray to God every day. 
But then the Rambam adds, but how, when, where is rabbinic? In other words, the mitzvah in the Torah to pray is a spontaneous prayer in what comes from one's heart. Because it says, you shall serve him with all of your heart. So according to Rambam, the mitzvah is that prayer should come from the heart. And since it, it, we're not told what to pray or when to pray other than every day, then it's also, it's left to spontaneity. So this is an, already is like an amazing insight into prayer that the Rambam says it's, it, it's coming from the heart and that it's spontaneous. Later in Hilchot Tefillah, the Rambam tells a little bit of the history that once we went to Babel, once we went to Babylonia, and people even started to forget Hebrew, and people began intermarrying, that when they came back with Ezra, so Ezra saw that as simple as it sounds to, to pray to God from your heart every day, that people needed um, help and boundaries as to how to do this. And so therefore, a set prayer was established at set times and set places. And this, the Rambam tells us, this is from the rabbis. So this is an important distinction that the Rambam makes is simply that prayer is something we should do every day and it should just come from the heart. But that the rabbis were, uh, were correct at a certain part of our history to start to make guidelines in which prayer falls. And since we're bound by the mitzvahs of the rabbis as much as we are from the Torah, so, so prayer, in a sense, the way we do it today, is rabbinic. But yet the rabbim still holds that the basis of prayer is from the Torah. The main person that will will quote who disagreed with the Rambam was the Ramban, and he holds that uh, it is a mitzvah in the Torah to pray, but not every day, and only under certain circumstances. But then he also agrees with the Rambam that later the rabbis came and they set. Uh, prayer at a certain time with certain words in a certain fashion that is from the rabbis so where did the Ramban learn it? he didn't learn it from the same verse he learned it from a different verse where it says in uh, Numbers 10.9 it says when you go to war you shall sound an alarm and you shall call out to God and he will come to your assistance and save you so the Ramban held that this is talking about prayer. When it says you shall sound an alarm, it doesn't mean just sounding the shofar. That's the simple meaning. You should sound the sound of the shofar, and God will hear and save you. But along with that was the mitzvah in times of need to call out to God. So here we see a, a distinction in the very basis of where does prayer come from. The Rambam is seeming to say that prayer is coming from the heart. It could be at a time of trouble. It could be at a time of danger. But since it's something the Rambam felt we should do every day, it seems to encompass much more than that. It could be thanksgiving. It could be praise. It could be just joy of being alive. Much uh, broader spectrum of this prayer welling up in the heart. Whereas the Ramban is very specific in a time of need. Then it is a mitzvah to call out to God. So that in itself is quite interesting to see where we get the basis. Now, if we look at prayer that has developed over the years, we'll see 
that both of those opinions are brought together. And we, we can see them especially in the Psalms. We can see in the Psalms especially that David and Melech express what we'll call the full gamut of human emotion and human predicament. And therefore, some of the Psalms are, are praise. Some of the Psalms are just expressions of joy to be alive and appreciation for the creation around us. Other Psalms are full of anguish and pain and uh, existential dilemma. Other Psalms are crying out for help. God, my enemies are surrounding me. Save me. And everything in between. That's the, 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 the eternal aspect of the Psalms is they express just about anything you could think of expressing. You can find a Psalm or a verse in the Psalms that will, that will express them. And we're told because David and Melech was, was called a Neshama Klalit, an all-encompassing Neshama. So he was able to do that. In other words, he was writing psalms about the exile, but the exile hadn't happened yet. And so in other words, he, 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 he was not just a Neshama Khalif, but he was talking from the past, present, and future in the way that he conversed with God. Okay, now, we quoted the Rambam and the Ramban. So this is about a thousand years ago. And we have two verses in the Torah that will tell us the sources. But in the Gemara, when they're now relating to the fact that we daven three times a day, so they ask an important question, is where, where do we learn that we're supposed to daven three times a day? Where do we get that? So one of the opinions, the three opinions, one opinion is, is that the Avot, Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov, set prayer. When did they set prayer? Let's start with Avram. Where do we learn that Avram davened Shachri? So it says, Avram got up in the morning and saddled his donkey. So, so we're told that's when they got up in the morning, that's why even today, when you daven the early minyan, it's called the hashkama minyan. This idea of getting up in the morning. So we're told it was Avram who got up in the morning. By Yitzchak. Yeah, it's a, it is in the afternoon, but what verse do we learn it from? Right. Last week's parsha, the Yitzchak Yitzchak l'suach b'sadeh. And it said it was at the, at the end of the day. So he went out to converse in the fields. This is even more explicit than with Avram. He went out to converse in the fields. We'll see later that this is a, a beautiful hint to the type of prayer called Hit Bodhidut, which is going out in nature in davening alone. And by Yaakov... So the Yaakov is the evening prayer. Where do we learn that from? So it says that the b'makom, he came upon the place, and and the sun had gone down. And Rashi there says that the language that he came upon the is the language of prayer. So one of the opinions in the Gemara is that it was the Abot. That's what we daven three times a day. It was the Avot that established this reality. And there's another opinion in the Gemara. The other opinion in the Gemara is that we daven three times a day and when we daven to correspond with the sacrifices. Now, just like there was a Tamid Shalboker, a continual uh, daily offering that was born, brought in the morning and there was a Tamid Shalbena Arbayim in the afternoon 
So that's what we daven, Shachri the Mincha, is in place of the Karbanot, of the sacrifices. And the evening prayer is because those sacrifices that were brought to the altar and did not have time to actually be burnt on the altar, so they were burned at night. And that's why uh, the evening prayer actually started as optional. Now it is an obligation. That's the second opinion. And the third opinion is that it corresponds to the daily changes in nature. That when night turns into day and the sun rises, that's why they set a morning prayer. When the sun is going to go down, that's why we set an evening prayer. And because night has its own essence, that's why a prayer in the evening. So as with all questions like this, so who's right? They're all right. They're all right. And so the language that the Gemara uses, the, let's say the conclusion, is that the Avot in, instituted the three prayers, and the rabbis found a basis for them in the sacrifices. Meaning, they're both right. And because, truthfully, because each one daven their prayer at a time of day, as it says, Avram got up in the morning, and Yitzhak went out to pray in the afternoon, and Yaakov came upon the place in the evening, so that takes into consideration the third opinion, that it was connected to the times of the day. So here's a beautiful way that the, the sages bring all the opinions together in a sense to show that they are all together. So then we have a question, uh, a very, very important question in regards to women. Because we have a principle that if a mitzvah is connected to time, it's called Shizman Grama, so women are uh, putter. They're not obligated. So this becomes a very complicated discussion, which I'm not going to go into all of the complications, but it's just interesting because it then matters in a sense is the source of, of prayer rabbinic or from the Torah. Because according to Rashi, According to Rashi, this concept of Shizman Grama is only on biblical mitzvot, not rabbinic. And therefore, women would be obligated. Biblical meaning deraita. Therefore, women would be obligated in prayer, just like that. And Tosvot disagrees. And says the concept of Zman Grama also applies to Rabbinic. There's a disagreement. So there the implication would be that women are not obligated in prayer. But today the halakha is that prayer is Rabbinic. But whether you agree with Rashi or Tosso, whether this idea of being obligated in time for women is applies to rabbinic or doesn't apply by the time you get to the practical halacha today um, much to many people's surprise women are obligated in praying almost all of shachrit and mincha even though a lot of the language is that they're not obligated but it's highly suggested that they do. And so therefore, really in seminaries and in, in that kind of learning, women are dominating Shachrit and Mincha, and on occasion women take on Mairav also. That's less prevalent. Far, I would say far less prevalent. But that is a fascinating discussion in itself how you take each part of prayer and you ask, well, are women obligated or not? And so, like for example, the Shema. The Shema is certainly 
a biblical mitzvah's door right to say Shema. And it's connected to time. It says, as you shall say it when you lie down to go to sleep and you wake up in the morning. So it is connected. There are, there are times to say it. So from that, we would say, well, for sure, women are not obligated in saying Shema. But as it's developed through the centuries, it's today, virtually all women will say Shema. And it's, and it's, it's, it's become that, for all practical purposes, they are obligated. So then you ask, well, what about the brachas before and after? Ah, so if they're saying the Shema already and the brachas are there only to, in a sense, introduce and lead us out of the Shema towards the Shemona Esrei, then they also should say. And what about Pesukit de Zimra? They also should say. So I'm, well, I'm, I'm quoting mostly the Mishnah Brura. So we're getting down to our generation here. And what about blessings in the morning? They also should say. So it comes out now that women are virtually obligated like men. There are exceptions and when there are problems or, or, or challenges to, to that, then it's much easier for a woman not to pray these specific things than, than a man. But so here we started and we've seen how, in a sense, it went from just a either a cry in a time of danger to a something that wells up in the heart until we return from Babylonia and two things were happening. This leads into the next thing which is called public prayer. That until we returned from Babylonia there was no concept of a synagogue. There was the Beit Hamikdash, or the Mishkan. It was either the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem. And that is where all communal prayer happens. If you wanted to pray on your own, men certainly had an obligation to say Shema, to put on tefillin. But what we think of a communal prayer did not exist did not exist. Once we went into exile and the temple was destroyed, so the first vestiges of, of what we call the synagogue began in Babel. And when we came back from Babel, it was brought. And then, even though we built the second temple, the idea that in, in various cities or villages there should be places where people could come together in order to to serve God in however they did started to become established with the destruction of the second temple then the rabbis purposely uh, set the synagogue as what's called a mikdash ma'at a small replica of the temple and that's when they began uh, to codify the order of prayer. In others, this is a, a critical transition in Jewish history that we went from a, a type of worship that was totally centered in one place and was led by one group of people, the Kohanim, to make that transition where now everyone does the service. And that's an, inc- an incredibly important understanding of prayer today. Prayer today is in place of the service in the temple. And so therefore, if you go through the service, you'll see how many connections there are to the service in the temple. So first of all, the fact that we're davening three de- times a day, we know already, is we're davening at the times that central sacrifices were brought. We add Musaf, 
because on Shabbos and Rosh Chodesh and the holidays an additional offering was brought the way that the synagogue is set up is like a little temple instead of the Holy of Holies they have a curtain in front of it and held the ark with the Ten Commandments so today we have the ark which has a curtain and holds in it the Torah and actually in the ark was the original Torah that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote and so therefore our ark today represents the Holy of Holies including the the curtain the fact that there's a men's section and a women's section this is a replica of the second temple and the rabbis did institute a division between men and women but in the beginning of the Beit HaMikdash men and women intermingled it was only when they saw what was called lightheadedness because of that mixing that they separated it but that we have in our Beit Knesset today the Bima where we read the Torah is like the altar the Talit is very much like the special clothing of the Kohanim and the fact that we all wear kippahs now I'm not, I'm not saying it was instituted because of this but the Kohen Gadol wore a wore a, a, a hat uh, not, not a hat but a, uh, <laughs> a head covering <coughs> We have the, the what's called the Ner Tamid, the everlasting light in our synagogues, and this represents the menorah. And the Shliach Tzibor is like the, the Kohen that is bringing the Karban for the community. So this is just the physical. And as far as the, in, in the prayers itself, I'll just mention some of them. There's, there's many more allusions. But the first, in the in the in the morning, we we read what are called carbonot. We read these sacrifices, and we say that that reading these are in exchange for actually bringing them. But the fact that the rabbis put a whole section about the service in the temple at the first thing in the morning is really telling us you should know that your prayers now are in place of these carbonates. Every day we say the, the song that the Levites sang in the temple on that day. In Eretz Yisrael we do Birchat Kohanim like they did in the temple. We say Mizmor Latoda, a psalm of thanksgiving. And we're told that this is in place of the thanksgiving offering the whole section of prayer called Tachanun where we hit our chest and go over different uh, sins that we might have uh, done this is like bringing a, a sin offering and there's, this, there's more and more right? there's this more and more that connects what we do to the Beit HaMikdash so this is there's a very, very important understanding that today each person has taken it upon themselves in a sense to be a Kohen in the temple. So we're all doing the service now. All doing the service. And there's an expression that the curse leads to its own fixing. In other words, in this case, the destruction of the temple which no one would want and we're, we're praying constantly for the rebuilding of the temple but it, it actually inaugurated a much needed development doesn't mean that we don't want the temple back and that it will not be integrated into how we serve God now but this transition from going from a individual Kohen leading all of the service like on Yom Kippur everyone just followed the Kohen Gadol in his service he did the service for everyone for hundreds and hundreds of years people didn't 
daven all day long in a sitter. The Kohen Gadol did the service for all of the Jewish people. And now, we do that. But this is every day. That's what's happening. But also, in the, the, the Tanakh itself, we do see other examples of public prayer. One is Hechel. is when everyone gathered together after the... Um, in, in the eighth year, it's actually the, after the Shemitah year. Actually, not Hechel, excuse me, Hakel. Which means from Kahal, to gather people together. Everyone gathered together in Jerusalem, and the, the king read from the Torah, and he said certain blessings. So this was a type of public prayer. Shlomo Melech, when he inaugurated the temple, also had, there was a certain type of public prayer. He, he, gave, he said uh, certain prayers in front of all of the people. And then you have what are called the Mamadot. It's a very interesting thing that the, the Kohanim were divided into 24 groupings. How, how did they know who was going to serve in the temple? So it was very, it was very organized. Very organized. They divided the Kohanim into 24 different uh, groupings. And each one was assigned approximately two weeks a year in the temple. And it's very interesting because the modern concept of Niluim in Israel, where soldiers, after they do their, their basic two and a half or three years service, then they're called up for a couple of weeks a year to serve on a rotational basis. Well, this idea is exactly what happened with the Kohanim. What happened was an interesting development. It was, we'll call it fairly spontaneous the way it happened, that different groups of Kohanim lived in different parts of the country. So when that, those Kohanim would go up to the temple to serve, people in their home district would come together and say different prayers and read from the Torah while their Kohanim were in the temple. These were called Mamadot, from the word Omed. They would like stand behind their group of Kohanim. So you had, again, the, the first beginnings of people coming together in order to pray. So then when we came back from Babylonia and, and the synagogue uh, structure began to take hold, so it wasn't like out of context. It wasn't out of the blue. It was, there were already different times. And of course, the, the three pilgrimage holidays, when everyone would come up for Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, so there was this idea of the whole um, coming together and bringing sacrifices together and of course the Levim were singing all the time so when people would come to the temple it was, an ex- it was a communal experience even though everyone was going for their own purposes but on the three holidays it was already a mitzvah in the Torah that everyone should go up to Jerusalem so then it, the coming together was mitzvah driven so again, it, it's, just, it's very interesting to see how ideas or mitzvot develop over the centuries, over the millennium, until we get to where we are today, to see where the seeds were. Okay, so we said that the Avot established the idea of, of pr- praying at a certain time of the day. So, the, a book that I've been using to prepare for this is called uh, Kavana, Directing the Heart in Jewish Prayer by Seth Kaddish. Excellent book. It is extremely scholarly, but it is written in simple language. A lot of times, scholarly works are written so scholarly-like that after a few pages, it just, it just doesn't resonate. But he writes it very, very uh, simply, straightforward, beautifully. 
but in, incredibly well researched. So he brings um, some reach, research about biblical prayer. So if we're saying that the roots of prayer, certainly according to the Rambam, but the Rambam also, they just have different verses that they're learning from. And we say that the Abba, so he explains that someone named Greenberg did a research on all the prayers in the Tanakh, not counting the Psalms, because the Psalms is what we is what makes up a lot of our prayer today, especially Pesuki de Zimra. They're basically all Psalms, but throughout our praying throughout the year there's so much sound so he, said, he took other prayers and he found exactly 140 prayers are mentioned in the entire Bible that it says specifically or the rabbis interpreted that what they were doing is praying like we said about Yaakov it says he came upon the place it doesn't say explicitly that he prayed but we have a tradition that that's what it means. Of those 140, 43 of them do not tell us what they prayed. It just says that they prayed. But 97 of them do. In other words, there are 97 stories or incidences in the Torah, the Tanakh, where people prayed and it's recorded what they prayed. We know what they pray. So, this alone is an important thing. I just understand that it wasn't just the Avot. And we see it throughout all of the stories, starting with the Avot. So we see, uh, really the first one is by Avram and Sodom. Here's the first instance where you have someone talking to God in a prayer-like way. We have other cases of God talking to people. But this is the first conversation in, in, in what we'll call a prayer. And so he points out that we can find three common threads between all of the prayers that have, uh, that it's recorded what they said. He says, not absolute that all, all of them have this, but three threads that he noticed was that the one who's praying addresses God, kind of like formally, like we do when we start the Shemona Esrei. Blessed are you, Lord our God, the God of Avram, the God of Yitzhak. No, it's a very formal way. The, that The people praying uh, don't like just bust out but they address God. In other words, God, I would like to enter into a discussion with you. I, or, God, I would like you to pay attention to what I'm saying. So, that, in other words, the addressing. So, we have it in Shemar Nasser, really. The first three, which are called Avot, is us addressing God. And the second one is that there's some kind of petition. God, could you please? So here we can see strands of both Rambam and Rambam. You know, if it's true, we could pray, and our prayer could be pure praise. God, I'm, I'm, thank you so much for making the world. Thank you so much for my food. And that's not a petition. It's just thanking, praising, acknowledging. But... The truth is, on a daily level, most of us do have requests that we would like to ask God for. And that's more like the Ramban, that we're praying when we have like a reason, we have uh, a need. And then, the third one is a very interesting one, is that in many of these cases, there is a motivation that is spelled out. Right? we might think that the motivation is on the side of the person. That in the prayer it's, um, God, I'm praying to you to heal me because I'm very sick. 
But that's actually not the majority. The majority of them, interestingly enough, are explaining to God what his motivation should be to answer me. In other words, like for example, when Moshe uh, prays to God to save the people, and he says, what will the nations say that God took them out of Egypt, but he wasn't strong enough to bring them into Israel. In other words, even though we're talking obviously on human terms here, but it's explained that Moshe is, as it were, explaining to God why you should um, accept my appeal. And Eliezer prays to God. And he prays in God, you should answer my prayer in the merit of my master Avram. Because I know how much Avram means to you. So if you answer my prayer, this will be showing your love for Avram. And, and throughout these prayers, the people are explaining to God why he should answer them. This is a very interesting, again, and, and unless someone does a survey of all the prayers, you might not pick that out. You might notice it at one time, and two years later you learn another prayer, but you wouldn't necessarily make the connection. But by looking at all of them, he found that these three strands, that, that we were addressing God, that they were petitioning God, and they were giving a motivation to God why you should answer me. Okay, so with this, we're, we're wrapping up this introductory um, foundation of, of prayer as it comes from the Torah and the Tanakh itself. Now, obviously, we could learn so much more, but, but, but this is just the foundation. Now we're going to switch gears a bit and move in to the area called Kavana. And we're going to see really an amazing development that this book Kavana develops in the beginning because he rightfully so says that of all the challenges of davening, this, this is probably the main one. Not, not on the philosophical level. On the philosophical level, it could be that someone has a challenge to even start to pray because either one, they don't believe in God or they believe in God but they don't believe that God really is all that involved in this world or they have the belief that if God wants it a certain way well that's how it's going to be so if something's happening who am I trying to change God's mind? So that's not what we're talking about. Those are our challenges that we're going to discuss next week. But we're talking about people who are committed to praying and want to pray. But here we're talking about the challenge of someone who not only wants to go to show, but he goes to show. So then the challenge becomes, you don't have to convince me that I have an obligation to dominate. But it becomes the experience where too many times prayer becomes boring. I can't concentrate. Um, I can't focus. I don't really understand the prayers that I'm saying. I don't know enough Hebrew. And if I know enough Hebrew, uh, I haven't really studied the prayers. These become the challenges. But like the main one really is Kavana. So he, he brings some, some teachings. So look what it says in the Gemara. Now, now these are sages we're talking about. These are, these are people that were quoting 2,000 years later. And they were great scholars. And they were examples to the people. So Rabbi Chia said, and this comes from Talmud Yerushalmi, uh, Brachot, 2-4 but it's also brought in Rosh Hashanah on 16b so he says like this Rabbi Chia said Rabbi Chia was like a, 
a famous sage said, I never concentrated during prayer in all my days. What? This is astounding. He says, once I wanted to concentrate, but I thought about who will meet the king first, the Arkafta, a Persian high official, or the Exilach, the head of the Jewish community. Now he's saying, one time I really got it together, I was going to have Kavana, and I ended up thinking about a meeting I was going to go to, and who would present them first to, to, the, to the Persian king. Shmuel said, I count clouds. Like during prayer, count. clouds. Right? Like I'm davening, and like I end up counting the clouds. <laughs> Rabbi, Rabbi Bun Berchia said, I count the layers of stones in the wall while I pray. And Rabbi Matnaya said, I am grateful to my head because it bows by itself when I reach Modim. He said, I'm so grateful that my body just automatically knows to bow when it's supposed to bow. Okay, so you read this Gemara and you say, like, I mean, were they literal? So most of this can be literal. Because who doesn't, you know, they're davening, and before they know it, they're counting the books on the shelf. They're looking at the stones in the wall. They're counting the clouds in the sky. And when Rabbi Chia said, this could be an exaggeration, right? Or it could be Rabbi Chia saying, maybe what he's saying is, it's not that I didn't have kavana, but the kind of kavana that I should have had, Never in my life. Never in my life. So this is this is really an amazing thing. Rob says Rob includes a lack of kavana, a lack of concentration, intent, uh, focus, as one of three things that are inevitable to happen every day. There are three things, no matter how much we try, no matter what level we're on, it's like virtually impossible to get around them. What are they? Lack of kavana in prayer. Sinful thoughts. It's almost impossible to get through a day without one thought that we really shouldn't be having. And saying a little Lashon Hara saying something about someone else that we shouldn't have said. Now here, we're talking about great sages, and he's talking to great sages. So, what they might count Lashon Hara, right, for us we wouldn't even think about. But still, he's saying these three things, or, you know, some kind of sinful thought that they're thinking to us might be like, oh, that's not sinful. But maybe to someone on that level, it's sinful. But he's saying these three things. So here we see from the Talmud that the problem of Kavan is not just a lay person, and it's not just a, a later development. It's, it's, it's a big problem. But nonetheless, nonetheless, there is a concept called Keva. Rabbi Eliezer said, one who makes his prayer keva, his prayer is not tachanunim. Uh, meaning, someone who makes his prayer rote, or an everyday occurrence, or something written in stone, or so regular that I don't even pay attention to it anymore, he says his prayer is not tachanunim. And in another place, Rabbi Eliezer says, anyone who prays, well, actually he puts it this way. He says like this, any prayer without kavana is not called prayer. This is from Rabbi Eliezer, and he, he said it like literally. And therefore, at least at the time of the Talmud, later the, the Rambam also wrote about this. It said that someone who cannot concentrate should not pray. 
And they brought an example that someone who returns from a strenuous journey does not have to pray for three days. Because it's assumed that it's going to take three days like to get over jet lag. <laughs> and so therefore, since the person can't have kavana, he shouldn't pray. So in other words, this idea that prayer needs kavana was was an accepted idea. So Rabbi Eliezer said in Brachot 30b, he says a person should always evaluate, evaluate himself. If he is able to concentrate, then he should pray. But if he is not able to, he must not pray. So in other words, according to Rabbi Eliezer, which no one disagreed with him. When he said this, no one disagreed with him. So the assumption is, is that everyone agreed with him. That one should not should not pray unless they have kavana. But then we have a, a seeming contradiction. There is a brighter that says the following. It says that a person must focus his mind in all of the blessings of the Shemona Esra. It says, but if he can't focus his mind during all of them, let him do so for one of them. So, this is a seeming contradiction to Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer said, if you can't have Kavana, you should not pray. And then this bright says, you should. Right? V'chadchila. In the first ideal sense, you should. But if you can't, at least for the first one. So there's much discussion. Is the second opinion disagreeing with Rabbi Eliezer? Or is he modifying? So in other words, what, he, what the second opinion is saying is, Rabbi Eliezer, everyone agrees that ideally you should not pray unless you have kavana. But what happens if it's not an ideal situation? So at least you should have it for the first one. And so this became the first modification of this absolute. In other words, if you don't have kavana, don't pray. Why? This is considered disrespectful to God. It's considered disrespectful that you are claiming by your praying that I'm standing before God. You're claiming by your saying these words that you believe that God is listening to you and is standing before you. So how can you dare lose your focus? If you were standing before a human king of flesh and blood and you were addressing him, would you lose your focus in the middle? And in fact, it's given over and pardon me that I can't quote the one, he said, Halavai were it so that we had as much fear of God as we had of, of a human king. Which is usually the opposite that we say. A human king shouldn't fear anyone but God. But what he, but he went on to explain is the way you would dress and prepare and think about and the the fear you would have of saying something wrong or something stupid or, or, or you only have a minute with the king like did I say the right I only had one minute maybe I should have said that and I said this so how have I we should have that same fear is when we, we approach God so that's the rationale behind if you don't have kavana don't pray because it, it's it's not like you're, you're doing a positive thing and then, okay, you lose focus. It's not considered a positive thing to stand before God and be counting the clouds, counting the stones. It's considered like the opposite of what you want to achieve, so therefore don't do it. So now we have a modification here. If you can't for the whole thing, so at least for the first one. Okay, so many people 
try to put these together and say the modification is that the second opinion is not disagreeing with Rabbi Eliezer on the importance of Kavana, but he's just saying if you can't, at least the first one. And if you, if, but if you don't think you even have Kavana for the first one, don't. Don't. Don't even start. So this became the first modification. And then the Rambam quotes it, and then it gets closer and closer to our day. And so therefore, the, the Shulchan Orach basically says in the idea, if you didn't have Kavana, do you go back and repeat it? So by the time we got to 500 years ago, the concept that was accepted was, in our day, we don't have so much kavana. Therefore, if you pray and you get to the end and you say, oh, I can't believe, I just said the entire thing. I, I, I don't know what I was saying. I was thinking about something completely. God, I really feel bad. I'm going to say the prayer again. So the, the Ramah, who's the Ashkenazic codifier, basically said, don't bother. You didn't have Kavana the first time, you're not going to have Kavana the second time. And the Shochan Orach was not necessarily disagreeing, but it was more like, not that you can't, but now if you think you can get it together, okay, but if you still don't think you can get it together, then what's the point? And so the, the conclusion that he reaches here is like, what a sad state of affairs. That and as, as it went from, you must daven the kavana or don't daven, to get to the point where, at this point, if you stood there and said the words, you fulfilled your obligations. And we don't, we don't have so much kavana in our day. Which leads us to a very, very important point is that it is explained that Kavana has two meanings. That Kavana in the strictest sense, see, up to now we've been defining Kavana as one's focus or understanding what they're saying or not letting their mind wander or having deep intent with their words. But in the most simple halachic meaning of Kavana, it means that when I do a mitzvah, I have the kavana that I am now doing a mitzvah. That when I say the Shema, that I should have in mind that I'm fulfilling a mitzvah in the Torah. When I say the Shemona Esrei, that I have the kavana that I'm fulfilling a mitzvah. And that's why you have before many mitzvahs, either a simple saying, which says, Hine muchanu muzuman, I am now ready and prepared to perform this mitzvah, as a way to make sure that we have kavana, or you have more kabbalistic uh, introductions to, to mitzvah, that, that this is in order that we're fulfilling the kavana of doing the Mitzvah. And then there is a second type of Kavana. It's not, it's not like it's separate from the first, but it's a different focus that I have an awareness of what I'm saying. So in other words, the whole question is, if you say the Shema, and you don't know what you're saying, and your mind was wandering the whole time, did you fulfill the mitzvah or not? And so it gets down to in our day, yes, you fulfilled the mitzvah. So then you ask, well, if you don't know what you said, and you don't even remember really saying it, because you come out of like a, a daze, and like, did I say it? Didn't I say it? Okay, I said it, but did I really say it? So it's assumed. Let's say you're standing there and you have your four tallest, four fringes in your hand. You look down like, ah, 
I must have had the kavana because here it looks like like I, I prepared to say it. Meaning that, in other words, if you're standing saying the Shemona Esrei, that shows that you had the kavana to do the mitzvah. Yeah, but what about did I did I think about anything? Did I understand anything? Did I direct my prayers? That becomes, in a sense, a second type of kavana. So I just wanted to, to, to clarify that. And so therefore, this is a, like a technical understanding of kavana, but it, it points out a very, in a sense, sad state of affairs, where the rabbis, out of great compassion for us, says if you say a whole prayer and you don't really know what you said, you don't have to, you don't have to repeat it because we don't have so much kavana in our day. But this is what many, many, many people experience when they go to shul. Either on a personal level they cannot conjure up much kavana because they have to catch the bus at 7 or the train at 7.15 or they have to meet someone or the same worries they had with money yesterday, they wake up in, in the morning today, and this people have a hard time concentrating on what the prayers are meant to do. Or, someone wants to concentrate, and wants to have kavana, but they go to a shul with, where the prayers are so fast, and there appears to be so little enthusiasm, there's no if there's joy in people's hearts you can't tell because it's just and so a person wants to have kavana but the synagogue atmosphere is not conducive to it so these are the challenges of prayer and hopefully by learning more about prayer it will give us the inspiration to get above these challenges, whether they're they're coming from us, our own personal problems, or our problem of fitting into a community that is doing are doing prayers in a way that we feel are uninspiring. And so, hopefully, by um, what we learned today, number one is that the problem of kavana is an ancient problem and applies, you know, like across the board. In a sense, it's comforting. <laughs> In the other sense, it's, it's a little discouraging. It's like, whoa, if this is one of the things I can't get through a whole day with. But again, he didn't say that. Uh, he, uh, he had no kavana. He just said it's hard to get through, uh, think about it, three hours of prayers and, and Shabbos. And once your mind doesn't wander from the words, very difficult. But also, the, to see the roots of prayer uh, from the patriarchs and throughout the whole Tanakh and what kind of prayers that they prayed and the fact that addressing God directly and believing that God listens, in a sense you can have a dialogue with God and that you can reason with God so this this is part and parcel of our our tradition that the prayers that we have today come from that now so they say that much of how we pray we learn from Hana so here's a beautiful example you Hana from a biblical prayer and it's a relatively short story but in everything that she said and even the way her lips were moving, we learn things about prayer. So it is very, very important to go back and learn some of the prayers in the Tanakh to give us to give us inspiration. Ah, this is the way Yaakov Davin, so Aram Davin, Hana, Shimshon, Gidon, Yehoshua, right? The prophets sometimes prayed and reasoned with God, the judges, 
And then, really, in the Gemara, we didn't even touch on it. There, there are many prayers in the Gemara that the various sages prayed to God. And so this should give us inspiration that we're part of a, really, of a 4,000 year chain of people who believe in the service of prayer. And that there is an address there. And this actually, in many religions and philosophies, is a big chiddush. Because they don't believe in a personal God. They might believe that there is a divine force in the universe that somehow directs, not directs, but created or is present, but that you can actually speak directly. This is a, this is a big innovation. This is a huge revolutionary concept. And that there's one address. So you had idol worshippers also and a, a thousand gods. Meaning, um, you know, standing before a stone idol and say, you know, please, you know, grant me this or grant me that. But the idea of a of uh, of a God that we believe actually in a sense speaks back to us. So that is a chiddush. And like I said, most of the Eastern religions do not have the concept of a personal God. It's, it's just the universe, the energy, however it is. And next week for the next installment.